Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Jessica Rudd's second novel and sequel to her debut, Campaign Ruby, is Ruby Blues. After helping the opposition win government in Campaign Ruby, Ruby Stanhope is now struggling with a PM whose popularity is quickly waning, a lukewarm love life and her looming 30th birthday. Jessica trained as a lawyer and worked in law, PR and politics before deciding to become a full-time writer at 26. Her first novel, Campaign Ruby, gained a lot of attention for its spooky similarity to real-life events just months after it was written. The storyline included the ousting of a Prime Minister just months into his term by a female colleague, complete with a tearful speech surrounded by his family and media. Thanks for joining us today, Jessica. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're about to release your second novel, Ruby Blues, and that comes after the success of your debut novel, Campaign Ruby. Tell us what Ruby Blues is about. Ruby Blues is about Ruby Stanhope, my protagonist, and her adventures in government. So Campaign Ruby was about the campaign, and that was Ruby's first foray into politics. Um, Actually, her first uh, time in Australia, she'd never been to Australia before. She's a Brit and a former investment banker. Um, So in Ruby Blues, I've, I've taken the character further, and she's now two years into a federal government, which is bombing in the polls. Um, she's really struggling to, I don't know, get the adrenaline going again with her job. Um, she's struggling with her relationship. She's just not in a happy place, uh, hence the title. So um, what I've tried to do is look a little bit at um, what happens when you, when you become a sort of cynic. I, I wanted to look at what it's like to go from being a, a lovely, idealistic, young, naive um, political novice and and transforming into a hardened hack. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of fun doing it, um, but it was it was kind of like hanging around a, a best friend in a really terrible mood for a while. <laughs> it picks up a bit, but yeah, for us it's a bit more than. The character of Ruby, when you first thought about her in your first novel, how did she emerge? Who was she modelled on? What you know? What gave her her, her personality? Well, I was living in London with my husband, Albert, and um, he's an investment banker. We had been living in London in the lead-up to and then during the financial crisis, and we watched a lot of his colleagues be made redundant around him um, and just sort of friends and um, and people that we knew in London. Um, and, and I really, well, for one, felt very sorry for these people who had lost their jobs so suddenly but also um, kind of excited for them because I think a lot of people find themselves stuck in careers that they're not necessarily passionate about. Certainly in Ruby's case, she she sort of, I don't know, naturally uh, followed her father into a career in uh, in banking, 
but she, there's so much more to Ruby than than that part of her brain. Uh, and so when she is made redundant, although it really sucks at the time, she gets completely um, drunk on uh, Pinot Noir, wakes up the next morning and finds that she's booked herself a non-refundable ticket to Australia of all places, um, where she meets the um, chief of staff to the leader of the opposition and a snap election is called and she's asked if she'd like to join the campaign. So, I mean, I really wanted to take a fish-out-of-water experience politics and just blow it up and exaggerate it so that my readers can see what I see in politics, which is the huge fun of it. Mm. And you trained as a lawyer and you've worked in law and PR and politics. At what point did you think I might give writing a go? Yeah, I I had always loved to write, but I just never thought I'd be any good at it, um, doing it professionally. Part of that was about discipline and part of it was just self-doubt, not knowing whether whether anyone would want to publish my work. Um, and so I thought I'd better get a profession under my belt and I enrolled in law school and, um, and got admitted as a lawyer and worked in the profession for a couple of years. Um, I then went and worked on my dad's campaign and um, and then in London worked in PR and kind of a crisis management role, which I loved. But then, um, as I was saying before, my, my husband was working in investment banking and when the financial crisis hit, he was offered the opportunity to go to the Beijing office where the economy was not half over tit. So um, we, uh, we just took that and we, we took that as a bit of a parachute and, um, and landed safely in Beijing. But I thought, what am I going to do in Beijing? You know, I, I, don't, I don't speak the language. I mean, I do a little bit, but I don't speak enough to... Um, to work in in the communications industry there. And so I had a chat with my mum about it, who's always good for a bit of career counselling, and she just said, Jess, write something, write something. And I think because she knew that I love to write, I love storytelling. And so, um, yeah, she really gave me the kick up the bum I needed to sit down and, and do this. And so you talked about discipline. What happened then? Did you set yourself some kind of schedule or, or did you just, you know, sit in cafes and write as the spirit moved you? What was the actual plan and rollout of the first novel? Well, I had a disastrous first fortnight as a writer because I told everyone that I was going to write a novel. And then I we arrived in Beijing and I said to Albert, my husband, okay, babe, we need to find something that has a perfect Sex in the City style Carrie Bradshaw study with a you know gorgeous view out over the city and um, I'm going to need a state-of-the-art laptop and I'm going to need fresh flowers and, you know, fantastic <laughs> coffee machine. Anyway, so we invest in all this nonsense. And I sat down on my first day and I flipped over my swanky new Mac and I, um, you know, I switched it on and, and opened a Word document and the cursor was blinking and it kept blinking and nothing came out. And I was terrified that I was going to be one of those people who told everyone they were going to write a book and never did. So um, it took a couple of weeks before I decided to get out of the house and go and sit in a cafe. And on that day, I found this fantastic cafe, um, 35 stories up uh, in a high-rise building in Beijing, looking out over uh, the main strip. Um, just incredible views of the city and I ordered some iced tea and I sat there all day and I wrote my first chapter very eagerly in a day 
Um, and so what I learned about myself is that I need noise. I need to be around people, uh, to write people. Otherwise, just nothing inspires me and I get distracted and go and put on a load of washing and make some muffins. Did you then park yourself at that cafe for the rest of the book? Yeah, and the cafe, they're called Wine Wine um, in Beijing. They're a Japanese cafe. They were so sweet and they, they would always look after my... Um, uh, after my laptop for me when I when I needed to go to the loo, um, which you can imagine if you're in a cafe all day drinking <laughs> loads of tea, that's quite regular. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they were very sweet and they always just took great care of me. Now I have a bunch of cafes that I write at and I like to mix it up a little bit and not become part of the furniture. <laughs> is there any method to the choice of cafe? Is it like, well, I'm writing about characters today or I'm, I go to this cafe or I'm writing the climax today, I should go to this cafe? No, is there any usually, kind of method? It's usually that necessity. I usually go, okay, where's going to have the strongest Wi-Fi signal because I need to do a bit of research or <laughs> which, which one is going to have the cleanest, nicest toilet and which one has the nicest staff that can look after me? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's usually about proximity and practicality rather than inspiration, I'm afraid to say. So Ruby Blues has been de- and Campaign Ruby has been described as political chick lit. Did you start out planning to write in the chick lit genre or because you mentioned uh, having a Carrie Bradshaw Sex in the City kind of study, is that something that you always envisaged? Well, I love the genre and I and I don't apologise for being a part of it. I think that um, if you write commercial women's fiction, really what you're doing is writing books that sell. Um, and I, I really have a, I have a mission, which is to help women engage with politics a bit more than, than they do. I think that a lot of women are turned off by politics and they don't really want to participate in the process. I can understand that. I mean, it's pretty um, adversarial and it just looks like bickering at the best of times. But I, I think it's really important that we do engage because we are, as a group, much more affected by public policy decisions than any, any other group in society when you think about it. I mean, everything from employment issues, maternity leave, childcare, health issues. I mean, there's so much and we really need to be out there and engaging with what's going on. So, I mean, why not do that in a format that's fun and and accessible? And I think the other thing to remember is that a lot of political staffers are women. I mean, you look at Tony Abbott's chief of staff, um, you know, pretty much all of his staff are women. There are there are lots of women in politics and they work really hard, but they also don't lose their femininity. You know, just because we, we like to talk about um, shoes and handbags doesn't mean that we don't have a brain, doesn't mean we can't contribute. Um, so I I just think that I think it was a natural fit, actually. Mm. Tell us about how you plot. Do you already know what's going to happen to Ruby at the very start? Is it something that, you know, you've got your plotting cards out on on your wall or, or on the cafe table? Um, or, or, or do you let that plot emerge as you go along? Well, it's more the latter. I'm a terrible planner. I try really hard. I mean, my publisher always said to me, send me a synopsis and we'll have a look at it. And I send them a synopsis and the book never turns out anything like the synopsis. Because I, I write kind of like you might read a, a choose your own adventure book. I um I just listen to my characters and follow them. And a lot of things that happen in the book are things I would never have dreamed of when I started writing it. 
um, and they've become integral parts of the plot. So I, I need to be quite free when I'm writing and I need to not not try and commit too much to things. Now, where that lets me down is on timeline. I find that uh, if I don't have a plot set out from the beginning, if I don't have a proper plan, if I don't know where I need the character to be by the end of the chapter, then we have to do a lot of cleaning up in the editing process with things like Mm. skipped days and missed weeks and all sorts of things. Um, (laughs) And in a campaign in particular, that really matters. Mm. Prior to writing that first novel then, what kind of writing had you done beforehand in terms of fiction or was that really your first go? Well, I got an awesome gig when I was about 17 with um, the Courier Mail in Brisbane um, and they um, they were looking for a bit of colour on their opinion page and so they asked me to contribute. Well, I sent off a piece actually and then they asked me to contribute more. So my first piece was about my school formal. Um, and that kind of oh, almost blog style writing, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's um it was really easy and free and um it didn't really have the kind of structure to it that that was expected of me in English class. Um that was when I first really fell in love with writing. And I mean I wrote a lot during uni, you have to when you're doing mm-hmm. a law degree. But I guess I guess in terms of fiction, it really was my first crack at it. I'd, I'd done a little bit of sh- a few short stories here and there, but nothing really serious. Um, mm. Yeah, so I was, I was quite pleased when I showed my work to someone and they said, "Wow, this is this is all right. You know, mm, <laughs> you, mm. could, you could probably get this published." And then, lo and behold, I did. That was pretty great. <laughs> How long did it take you to write Campaign Ruby and likewise Ruby Blues? Well, in Beijing, because the cost of living is relatively low, I, I had the luxury of writing full-time. So I would just put that disclaimer out there. But it took me about six months, six or seven months, to get Campaign Ruby in draft. Um, and then we edited from there. And Ruby Blue took a little bit longer. Um, I think that's just because second books are hellish. <laughs> They're horrible to write. You just have this it's... permanent performance anxiety that you're never yes. going to be good enough. It's, and you're never going to – you're a one-hit wonder and, oh, awful. <laughs> it's the pressure of the sophomore act. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, now, Campaign Ruby got a lot of attention for a number of reasons, but particularly for its storyline being very similar to real-life events. What was that like at the time to find essentially your words coming true in real life? Um, it was pretty spooky standing up there with my dad at his press conference thinking to myself, hmm, I think I wrote this. Um, but then again, I mean, I was comforted knowing that it is fiction, that I wrote it a year before um, mm. before that happened. I wrote that chapter a year before and yet that happened. So I, there's no way I could have seen it coming. And even though a lot of people are going to read into it and have read into it and and thought, oh, she must have seen something. She must have heard something around the dinner table. And is this her way of sending us a message that she knew all along that this was going to happen? No, um, it's not. It, it, there's nothing like that. I, give me some credit, people. I've got an imagination and I use it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've already talked about uh, the, the cafe aspect of, of writing with your laptop. Do you have any other rituals or, or um, do you have kind of like a daily 
you know, thing that you need to achieve, like a word count or, or something like that? Well, what I find really helps me and has helped me with the discipline of writing is to treat it like a job, to get up, to get dressed, to put makeup on, to go somewhere, to sit down, plug in the laptop and be quite quite focused on staying at work all day. So I, I will sit in front of a laptop for um, an eight-hour day and it, even if it's driving me nuts, even if nothing is coming out, even if I just feel like I'm having a really stuck day, I mean, I had days like that in the office when I when I worked in PR and in law. So why not allow myself and, and force myself really to have those days at work in writing? I think that that has helped me um, because if I didn't, I would just always escape and go, well, I'm not having a good day, so I'm going to the park and I'm going to lie down in the sunshine and read someone else's work. <laughs> and it sounds a bit like that, that your beautiful Sex in the City study has gone a bit to waste. Yeah, I know. I feel so bad about it. We actually left that apartment because it was just like a shrine to the death that could have been. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so tell us about Get Reading and how you're involved. Oh, well, look, I had a great time um, with Get Reading last year when I launched Campaign Ruby. Uh, they were kind enough to include Campaign Ruby in the 50 books you can't put down. Uh, and it's such a terrific initiative uh, that we, we're out there and encouraging people to pick up a book and read. I mean, how simple is that? But I think we're not doing that enough. And that's that's kind of why I write the way I write. I, I think that, you know, if, if something's easy to read, then it, there's no reason that can't be as good a book as something that is grueling to read. Um, so, yeah, I, I was delighted to have been included in the 50 books you can't put down. And they've, they want to tour me again this year, and I'm just going to run around the country encouraging people to pick up books. It's a pretty good gig. <laughs> Not bad, yes. And so have you really, have, are you already working on or have brewing in your head your next novel? Yeah, I've got a few ideas up my sleeve. I, I'm not sure whether I want to keep writing Ruby now, um, mm. but I'm certain that there's more Ruby to tell. Um, I, I'd love to write something about China. But I'm just mm. not sure yet what form that takes and, and whether now's the time to do it. I figure, I mean, it would be such a waste of living in a city like that if I didn't take advantage of it and, and write some of it down. So I guess I'll do what I did last time, which is finish my tour, go back to Beijing, open my laptop and see what comes out. <laughs> when you first moved to Beijing, what was that like? It was the was there quite a lot of culture shock, and how did you adapt? It was kind of a perfect place for a writer because I didn't have many friends, mm. and um, and in a way it was it was quite isolating being up there in that cafe all day. So um, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really engage with what was going around me all that much in my first six months of being there. But now I have a wonderful community in Beijing. I have a lot of close friends that are the sorts of friends you know will be there for life. And, um, and yeah, we're really settled there. We have, a, we have a great time being in such a vibrant city. Beijing is a like New Yorkers. You know, it's a very international city. It's full of people from everywhere. And proper Beijing people, what they call Lao Beijing, which is like old Beijing people, they're, they're just so gutsy. You know, they're the kinds of people who don't mind telling you what they think. And I, and I like being in an environment like that. It's, a, it's um, quite inspiring creatively to be in a place mm. like that. 
You spoke about one of the first gigs that you got was for the Korea Mail, and that's where you fell in love with writing. But that was essentially nonfiction. Yeah. So do you do you think you will revisit nonfiction in your writing? Yeah. Look, I think so. Um, I I don't know when, and I don't know what it will be, but um, I'm sure there's something I could write about sometime down the track that's happening in reality that interests me. At the moment, though, I just love making stuff up and writing it down. I think it is the best <laughs> job in the whole wide world. <laughs> that first thing that you wrote for the Korean Mail is, is as you say, almost column style. I can sort of see you um, really taking well to, to a column of that nature. Is that something that you would like to do? I'd actually love to do that. I mean, that kind of social commentary... It comes quite naturally to me, and I, I'd really like to engage more. And I think that's why I'm really grateful for Twitter. Um, <laughs> Twitter's like my water cooler. You know, I don't have any colleagues, so it's kind of nice to just sit there and just spew out whatever's on my mind, um, even if it's <laughs> short form. But, I, yeah, look, I'd love to write a column. So if you can hook me up with someone, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Consider it done. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, uh, with law and and PR and or, and or politics, do you think you will go back to law or PR or, or, or those careers again? Or are you pretty set that this is your full-time profession? Well, this current career path feels right to me. But then again... Um, when I was in PR, that felt right to me. And when I was in law, no, that would be a lie. That didn't feel right to me at all. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, look, I, I'm a Gen Y. I, we, we are serial career commitment folks. And um, who knows where I'll be in 5, 10, 15 years' time. But I guarantee you this, that as soon as writing stops being fun for me, as soon as I stop enjoying it, I'm going to put down the pen because I, I just don't think I'd be doing a good service to my readers to just spew something out for the sake of it. So it sounds like you really do think writing is really fun and it sounds like you thoroughly enjoy it. But I talk to a lot of authors and they also talk about the sheer hard work and pain and agony and blood, sweat and tears. So do you go through that as well or is it mainly fun for you? Well, I went through some long moments in writing Ruby Blues when I just felt like anything would be better. I, I was looking at pieces piece of paper on the table thinking, I could paper cut my eyeballs now and that would be more fun than editing this. Um, <laughs> I could paper cut my what? <laughs> my eyeballs. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I love it more than I hate it. There are moments when um, there are moments when I hate it because I run out of ideas and I just find that really frustrating. But for most of it, um, I mean, it's just so such a great sense of achievement when you get to the end of a chapter and then you read it back and you laugh at your own jokes. I know that sounds really daggy, but that's usually a good sign that my work's going to be funny. And so what is your advice for people who were in your position maybe two or however many years ago, they haven't written anything, but they've always wanted to? What's your advice to them? My advice is to have a story first and to listen to the voices of your characters, as soon as they have clarity, as soon as there is clarity in those voices, then 
then I think that's when you can start writing. I don't think you can force it. I don't think you can go as I did, well, I'm going to write a book now. You actually have to allow it all to stew in your head first. Um, and then once there's some consistency in that stew, once there's something in there that makes it really sing, then that's when you can start committing it to paper. Mm. And what would your advice be to them on how they can improve their writing skills? I think that sharing it with people, not just the people the people who love you, but mm. the people who will be harsh with you is really important mm. um, because otherwise you're never going to know. If you just have people like, you know, my mum was fantastic throughout um, the, the writing of Campaign Ruby and she would read each chapter as I finished it and send back lovely, encouraging words. Mm. But she's my mum. And, um, and And that's what she's going to do because she's a lovely person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's really important to have other people in your life who can really shape your work and make it make it better. So the unreasonable friend, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. You you need someone who's going to be so harsh with you that you might feel like crying and punching them afterwards. Um, but you, you need that so that your work can be the best it can be. And I strive for perfection in my work. Um, I really do. And I, I edit each chapter as I finish it and then I edit them again. And then, and I feel really, I mean, I, I've just done an, I did an interview last month with um, the Women's Weekly. Mm. And this was when I was, I was still in one of my one of my drafts, um, and I had found out that my publicist had um, sent a draft to the interviewer. And even though it was a good draft, and even though it was fine, I was so anxious about mm. about this. Um, you know, journalists reading my work because I just thought I haven't even had the chance to go over it with my editor and fine-tune it and all of that and I think it's good to be like that about your work but you can be a little bit precious sometimes Mm. yeah so who was your unreasonable friend apart from your very supportive mother of course who was that person who who you know really told you like it was well I have a few people around the place who uh, who contribute different things. So, for example, because Ruby is a Brit, I had um, a friend that I actually grew up with as a diplomat in, in China because um, I was there as a baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a Brit and she's London-based and a former investment banker. So she's perfect, like she's Ruby's voice. Mm. So she did a lot of weeding out some of the Australianisms and, and putting, helping me with putting in something that would be more real to come out of Ruby's mouth. Mm. Um, I had other friends who would read things and go, laughed at that, hated that, did not understand that at all, Mm -hmm. Um, what was going on here. And I just, all of that was hard to hear, but extremely helpful. Mm. So if you can find those people in your life who are going to give you that feedback, who are going to be brutal and honest with you, then they are the treasures. Mm. Now, at your current stage in life, you've got some best-selling books. You've got a lot of options available to a young woman. So you've got a lot of choice. What makes you get out of bed in the morning? What is the thing that is most exciting to you each day? Well, I just, I love creating. I love storytelling and I I love knowing that 
that I might make someone laugh on the bus on the way to work. You know, I that's that's what makes me tick. It's it's knowing that I can bring joy to people um, in their lives, and it's quite a personal thing being in someone's handbag or being read in the bath or, um, you know, those those are personal moments. And I don't know about you, but the moments I've had when I've read books have been quite personal to me. Mm. So just being taken into someone else's life like that and having the pages turned and being able to entertain them, that's that's really what gets me going. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.